Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the Via Media Podcast. We are on this journey of inspiring a curious and hopeful humanity because we believe there is a spiritual and intellectual and cultural revolution that is currently underway. Described as a shift in human consciousness or the next stage of human evolution, some are considering it a new enlightenment. In religious circles, the term deconstruction has become popularized to describe the leaving of previously held beliefs for new and different kinds of convictions and spiritual expressions. Now, what all of these terms are attempting to describe is the transition that is taking place in how we humans think and behave in this world. We are all wrestling with profound questions and are trying to understand how to create a better way of being, better spiritualities, better religions, better science, better philosophies. My first guest for Via Media's conversations is Jeremy Lent, the author of The Patterning Instinct. It's a vast sweep of what he calls a cognitive history that reveals and illuminates how we have come to shape our world. His second book, The Web of Meaning, picks up the vision to show how science and spirituality are deeply integrated in ways that we have long forgotten. Jeremy's work is incredibly aligned with Via Media's mission and values. And so I was thrilled and humbled that he accepted our invitation to dialogue. While I am quite disappointed that we didn't have hours to discuss, I hope this conversation sparks your imagination and intrigue and spurs you to begin thinking differently about this world and your life within it. Thanks for being a part of the Via Media community. Here is my conversation with Jeremy Lent. I am absolutely thrilled and humbled to host our very first guest, Jeremy Lent, who is the author of some phenomenal books. The first one, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, and the follow-up book to that, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Um, this is going to be the topic of our conversation for tonight. And for those of you who are watching live, you'll see the Slido event number down at the bottom of the screen. You're welcome to submit questions and we will ask questions of Jeremy throughout um, and towards the end. Jeremy, thank you so much. I'm incredibly humbled and honored that you would join us tonight. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to be here, Kevin, and so looking forward to our conversation yeah. with you. Okay, so let's start with a quote from your book. This is uh, Patterning Instinct, page 25. Uh, there seems uh, there seems little doubt that we are currently in the midst of one of the great critical transitions of the human journey. And yet it is not at all clear where we will end up once our current system resolves into a newly stable state. My hope in writing this book is that it can offer a valuable framework for readers to come to their own assessment of humanity's future path and their own potential role in shaping it. I love that quote because that is exactly what we would like to do here. And what I'd like to ask you basically is what then is that critical transition that we are in based upon your basic work? How would you sum up what that critical transition is? Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> that, that is a key theme, uh, both in that book, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Meaning, and basically all the work that I'm doing uh, right now. Because I think what is pretty clear to anybody who is looking at what's unfolding in the world right now is we are going through not just a um, like a change, um, like a change of an era or something like that, but really one of the most profound transformations in the human experience that's mm. happened since we first evolved as human beings. And in that book, The Patterning Instinct, I look at some of those transformations. The first really was when we went from being nomadic hunter-gatherers, where we spend like 95 plus percent of human history um, to, to settling down <clears throat> with agrarian civilizations. That changed just about everything mm. in what humans experience. And the other one really as large is probably the rise of the scientific revolution in Europe a few hundred years ago, when again, <clears throat> it took a, a couple hundred years to unfold, but then it changed just about everything. We're going through something similar this mm. century, maybe even bigger. The question is, obviously, that nobody has a real answer to is, what is that transformation going to look like after it's happened? Yeah. And there's really, we can kind of identify really, I think, three uh, potential pathways which kind of constellate <clears throat> into different trajectories. One is basically collapse, 
which mm. is something that more and more scientists around the world, we're talking about serious, um, conservative, um, thoughtful scientists, not like people out in some radical fringe, are saying that if we don't change what we're doing, this is where our civilization is headed. Not just climate breakdown, but ecological devastation, the incredible inequities getting worse and worse. These are driving us to a path of potential collapse. The second scenario is somewhat more subtle, and, and, and I would say from a moral perspective is even more egregious than allowing this collapse, which is a kind of a bifurcation of the human species. Some call it like a fortress earth, where the global elite managed to sort of <clears throat> segment themselves off um, from the collapse that's taking place basically everywhere else around them, but then, <clears throat> then use that almost like a new feudalism, if you will, use their powers to do their techno enhancements and their genetic enhancements and all the stuff they want to do, right. but like let the rest of human, humanity collapse around them. That may be the path that we're actually headed on, um, maybe even more than collapse, potentially. We right. can't know that. The third scenario is the one that anyone who basically has a beating heart and looks and cares about what's going on um, would want, which is to transform this devastating trajectory we're on right now, to transform it at such deep levels that we can actually change the human trajectory to something positive, to what I often call like future flourishing, like where we can actually um, have a more, not just sustainable, but regenerated earth where basically every, we can have the conditions for every human being to yeah. live a life of dignity. Yeah. Are you suggesting those uh, technocratic elites don't have a beating heart? <laughs> is that, I mean, I, and some of this is getting um, to, I think the, the big question of your book, because all of that is basically based upon yeah. this patterning instinct and are not those people just simply following the basic pattern. So yeah. um, can you, uh, uh, let's expand that a little bit more. So you have these three visions that are, that we right. have some options. And I, I, I would say that your third option is the one that many of us are yearning for, but yet we're still stuck in a different pattern. So can you help us understand kind of the trajectory of that patterning and how we've gotten to this particular point where we have those two options and how this third option can actually manifest itself? Yeah, that, I mean, these are obviously profound questions. And just to answer that kind of half in jest statement, <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it, it's a fair question. Um, honestly, I think um, very, very few people other than basically sociopaths or psychopaths would want that second scenario where most of the human race is suffering a terrible collapse while they sort of um, branch themselves off. What I think goes on, and I think this is true, not just of some um, micro global elite, but almost anybody <clears throat> who is living in the global north right now, who's doing fairly well and is aware of what's going on. There's this part of us, we say, oh, this is really terrible what's happening. And then there's other part that says, I need to look out for myself and my family. Right. And like, what's a good place to live? If climate breakdown's happening here, maybe we should move to, and implicitly, we're all, anyone who has those thoughts, and I'll put myself in that category at times, um, we're all implicitly part of that second morally egregious trajectory if we don't right. really invest ourselves into that chain. So I just kind of wanted to make that clear. I'm not just pointing fingers right. at a few billionaires well, or whatever. I, I think I say that also, I say it in jest, but I also say it with a recognition, like when I was going through your work, I was recognizing I'm a part of that too. I ask, exactly. I, I'm because this is the milieu that I'm a part of and the culture that I'm a part of, I'm I, I'm asking those same questions. I'm operating yeah. by the same concepts and worldviews. Yeah. And so one of the things that, one of the reasons why having a conversation with you and your ideas, I think it's just so tremendously important is because it's kind of that kick in the pants, wake up call to start to say, wait a second, the conceptual framework by which I'm operating is part of the problem. It's not just the decisions that I'm making, it's right. the framework out of which yes. I make decisions. So that's exactly. kind of what I want to get to. Yeah. And I think um, the vast majority yeah. of the people that I've, I'm in conversations with, including myself, we just don't understand that conceptual framework. Yeah. So um, And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy then to kind of turn to that deeper question you're asking. And when you're talking about conceptual framework, um, I, as well as you know, Kevin, I write a lot about what I I, I use the word well world view to describe yeah. that. 
which is basically a worldview is not just kind of a particular viewpoint. It's basically like the lens through which we see and make sense of everything that happens around us. And the reason that it's so important to recognize that there are worldviews is because in, it's really just like when we use our eye, our eye is a lens and we use it to look at things, but we don't know until some biologist explains to us that we're actually are looking at things through a lens and the world out there doesn't necessarily look the way we think it does, but we, we kind of, and because we see everything through it, that's right. what we think it actually is. Right. Similarly right. with a worldview, a worldview is basically this total framework with which we understand things. And it's not something that is explicitly taught to a child. It's not like, Somebody sort of sits the child on, on his knee at age like six or seven and says, now, let me tell you, this is how our world works. Here's how you make sense of it. It's basically, right. it's implicit. And which is why I call that first book I wrote, The Patterning Instinct, because mm -hmm. as humans, we have this instinct to pattern meaning into the universe around us. Um, and it's that original patterning instinct that led to humans having, making sense of things through a worldview. And worldviews, um, only they're very conservative in a sense. They don't change very frequently because uh, it's like it's so embedded in our unconscious. We're not conscious of them. But one way in which we can see, we can become more aware of a worldview and shift it is by realizing there are other worldviews out there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work looks at this shifts in worldviews. First, you had a nomadic hunter-gatherer worldview that saw the world basically as like a sort of giving parent mm -hmm. and everything around them as like family. And then you had an agrarian worldview, which was very based on hierarchies. Everything's, everything's a hierarchy, both in your society and the gods. And then you had the scientific worldview, which arose um, again in Europe around the 17th century. And that worldview was very different from what had come before, even though it had its antecedents in actually the whole, the, the, the Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. So right now we think, we used to think nowadays of um, Christianity and religion being opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating is that the scientific revolution pioneers in the 17th century were all devout Christians yeah. and felt they were doing God's work, whether it was Galileo, Newton, or whoever they were. Um, and this worldview is a worldview of dualism. The reason why it was inherited from Christianity is because um, Christianity and, um, and other dualistic religions, such as Islam, um, had this notion of two separate universes, a, a sacred domain and a polluted worldly domain. And in Christianity, the human soul sort of would connect you with that, um, with that heavenly domain. And the world became basically desacralized, mm. no longer seen as this place which had its own intrinsic spiritual value. But it was more like a, a kind of a theater, which the sort of battle of the, the soul against its uh, temptations was played or whatever. The scientists um, kind of inherited that worldview, and they thought their job was to look at this kind of machine that God had made and break it apart to understand how it worked. Um, and they did such a great job of that. It's basically what we know nowadays is reductionism. Mm. They did such a great job of that, that it transformed everything around our world. We can thank that for our ability to talk to each other right now um, right. over the internet, others to see what we're doing. We can thank that for the, like the germ theory of disease, which has so powerfully changed um, human well-being. Um, and so one thing to really understand is I celebrate so many of the advances that arose from that worldview. But because of this way in which it saw the world as a machine, like this core metaphor, and because it was so powerful, people got to think that that metaphor, which was a useful way of understanding things, was the reality itself. Mm. So we've now gotten to the point here in the modern age when it's considered completely the norm to actually see the world, the rest of non-human nature as a machine to see animals basically right. not as having intrinsic value in themselves, but as being essentially like kind of driven by their selfish genes to do what they will. Um, and even our, uh, our, our own bodies the same way. In, uh, here in uh, Silicon Valley, people talk about the sort of wetware um, of, the, uh, of the, the body and the software as if we can actually separate these things out. That split, in um, that dualistic split and that seeing nature as a machine is some of the fundamental reasons why we've driven to this place of complete imbalance with the rest of life right. on Earth. Well, and I feel like we let's draw those connections. So the agrarian 
the primary, you would call it a pattern or the metaphor that we use, the conceptual right. framework, giving parent. Um, now, d is that the first step of the bifurcation? Is that is that the first step or is that, what, how would you call that? Like an intermediary step? I mean, if you- Well, well so, so basically, if we look at, one way we can sort of explore this, as I, as I think you're moving towards, is really looking at this current dominant worldview as a worldview of separation, right. as opposed to a worldview of deep interconnectedness. And I think it is possible to actually look at like sort of basically there's kind of maybe four, three or four major steps in that separation um, that has led to this place. The first step comes even really with the evolution of human beings themselves. Mm and the development of what um, in my work I call our conceptual consciousness, this ability um, to see ourselves as separate from the rest of life, um, to have self-awareness, um, and, and that also allows us to actually think symbolically, um, which led to the evolution of language, basically. So now we're talking about very like hundreds of thousands of years ago, the development of this conceptual consciousness. That led to really the first split between humans and the rest of the living earth. <clears throat> and it also did lead um, some of the great, great mass extinctions that happened on earth um, since humans arose, came um, the extinctions of megafauna in different continents, came even before we settled down for, um, <clears throat> for agriculture. But because humans developed these powers over the rest of life on earth that, we, that no other species had developed before, that's step number one. Mm. Step number two was the rise in agriculture when we put up fences and basically said out there is like um, the wilderness and here on this side is what is sort of cultivated and culture. Um, and we also put up fences against other human beings and said, you know, I own this territory. Um, if, if, you're, if you don't um, own as big a lot, too bad for you, I'll employ you, I'll make you a slave and then you can work on my land. So that right. led to these hierarchies. So yep. that's the second level of separation, which kind of um, described virtually every agrarian civilization around the world. And this, the next level of separation really happened not with the scientific revolution, but with the ancient, well, I say with the ancient Greeks, but it happened, it's, we can try to pause through exactly when this happened. There was yeah. this rise of the sense of dualism because these agrarian civilizations, they saw the gods as being hierarchies, but they didn't see a clear split between humans and the spirit world. And almost every civilization had this notion of spirits that was sort of quasi-tangible. <clears throat> and your body, your, you sort of became a spirit after you died. And there was this kind of step of gradations between humans and the, um, the spiritual world. With dualism, we had this utter split, two different universes, one sacred dimension of what Plato called the good. Mm -hmm. um, and here was the world which um, was just kind of polluted. That's what led to this desacralization of, of the earth. So that's really the next split, which kind of got consolidated with the scientific revolution and the rise in reductionism. Yeah. And we could say there was one sort of final split that's really been t happening in more recent times with the rise of this exponential rise of technology, the rise of, of, of basically the corporation and global capitalism, which has almost completely split the human experience off from anything to do with um, the rest of life around us. Yeah. Can we yeah. Uh, point, point that to a platonic sense of ideals, right? So the Plato's, not, not only is there a split, but there's also a prioritization of value. So the ideal actually becomes more important, more valuable, more good than the actual physical. And that ma makes its way into kind of Gnostic religions and Gnostic ideas. Exactly. And we're inheritors of this. So this is, okay. So this is what I think is so critically important. What happened and, and like what you said there's there's nuances to the historical development but we got a platonic idea we've got the development of christianity that's trying to meld itself with the hellenistic world that basically takes this bifurcated sense of that which is up there that this is down here and that which is up there is good and so you have a split of the universe um which then turns into a mechanized sense of the universe and that right. the universe is essentially a machine because the scientific revolution takes that idea and yeah. says, well, if, if that's the case, then we can learn the laws and the physics of exactly how this all works. And all of that 
cognitive history is what's deeply embedded in how we think. And the reason why right. I think your explanation of that is so incredibly powerful is that's what gets us to the confinement of animals for our food. This is what gets exactly. us to the destruction of our ecology and deforestation. Because if if this physical world in which we're living in is just merely a machine that we can extrapolate value out of, then it almost doesn't matter or it, it, it matters greatly, but it matters based upon the values of that conceptual framework. That's right. And in fact, that isn't even embedded in our language. Like um, when we right. talk about things like um, fish stocks or whatever, um, right. the, we, we sort of think of, we actually look at the language itself um, as uh, as just kind of uh, creating like things as resources. So even the very nature, it, there's even this a very a more progressive, thoughtful, sensible approach to looking at the future saying what we're doing is unsustainable and we need to come up with a sustainable way to relate to nature but even that oftentimes still views the um, the rest of life on earth as just a resource for human consumption right. but it's a little bit more enlightened and says we're kind of blowing through our resource we need to exploit it more sustainably right but the shift we're talking about that's needed is something that goes to a deeper place where we actually recognize that we are not separate from nature, that we actually, as human beings, we are part of life, that we evolved, um, <clears throat> we, we actually share our heritage with all of life around us. Right. And we are, just as the those nomadic hunter-gatherers saw, and as indigenous cultures still today um, explain very clearly, we are all family, we are all relatives. And once we start to look at that in a different way and start to realize that animals actually do have feelings. They actually, when a chicken is in one of these things called CAFOs, yeah. concentrated animal feeding operations, um, and is just basically treated with its beak cut off and, and stuck in a cage, it is suffering. It's suffering in its own way, in just the same way that you or I would suffer if we were in, yeah. that, in that kind of place. Yeah. And it's that recognition that we have been divorced from. Now, what is so, I think, intriguing and powerful is that if you were to say what you just said kind of outside the context of the holistic work that you've done, by the way, footnotes galore and uh, profound um, reference to peer reviewed science. Right. This, I mean, you're not you're not messing around here with these books. Right. What is so profound is that the conclusion that you just drew, drew can be seen by some, especially with this particular worldview. Oh, you're being like the, the environmentalist. You're by, being the kind of the, the spiritualist or whatever. But what you're doing here, and this is what I think is really important to articulate to our audience, is that you're actually bringing in scientific understandings as yeah. well as spiritual and indigenous wisdom because they're all starting to come to the same conclusion. And in many ways, kind of the mechanistic um, pursuit of understanding is leading in some ways back to yes. this fundamental truth. Like if you yeah. look at mycology, if you look at DNA, if you look at, you know, even quantum mechanics, all these things are starting to lead to this conclusion. Can you That's share right. a little bit more about that yeah, journey? Yeah. Thanks for, for, for that question, Kevin. And, and, and that really, in a way, kind of what we're doing now is shifting from the topic of that first book I wrote some years back, The Patterning Instinct, to the theme of this more recent book called The Web of Meaning. And as you mentioned before, the subtitle of it is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And this is what this book really unfolds, is all of these things that we just described, this kind of reductionist worldview, seeing nature as a machine, and the stuff that many people in the world today um, think that is reality, that's hard science. What this book shows is that that is actually not hard science. Um, what it is, is science as, as it um, was first uh, explored back right. in the 17th century. Right. And in more recent decades, in more recent centuries, but it's certainly in more recent decades, um, the, a, a hardcore understanding of science has shown that these reductionist ways of looking at things to be misguided basically to be limited, not to, ex not to really understand what the world truly is about. Right. And the simple way to get at that is to understand um, that when I described earlier this um, 
sort of process of what's called reductionism, mm -hmm. which is the way scientific works by reducing parts into its separate and everything into its separate parts and understanding better. That's how chemistry works with elements, biology with DNA or, um, or genes or whatever, and, and, um, and f physics all the way down to quarks, whatever they might be. Um, but in each case, um, the, these different, understanding these different parts, um, if people get too focused on that, then they create what's, what I call ontological reductionism, mm. which basically says we understand things so well through breaking it apart that that's the only way to understand everything about the universe. And any other approach has to be misguided. Right. That's the ontological mistake that right. oftentimes people make in that reductionist place. Right. So in modern decades, system sciences such as complexity science, network theory. Um, you can look at sciences like evolutionary, anth um, evolutionary biology, cognitive anthropology, all these hardcore sciences are more focused on looking at the connections between things than just the things themselves. And what we learn from these sciences is not that reductionism is wrong in any which way, but it, is, it only describes things to a limited degree. And when you start to look at what are known as complex systems, which basically means any system that is nonlinear and which describes any system that is living or any system that's created by humans as because we ourselves are, are living. And so we create like nonlinear systems um, in all of these systems. And um, they actually, as they get more and more complex, they lead to phase transitions and they mm -hmm. lead to um, a, a new state, which you can only understand basically based on principles of how these things yeah. connect up. That doesn't mean that the stuff they're made of is invalid, but it means that that doesn't explain it at these higher levels. That's what complexity science, system science explains. But, and this is what's so fascinating, that leads to a shift in the very notion of what science is. Because rather than being this hardcore separation between science and say spirituality and science and quality, which reductionism like says, that's the only way to approach science. Right. When you start looking at the connections between things, you start to realize that, well, as the person looking at it, I'm actually, my very observing of this state affects the state, which is something discovered in uh, quantum physics yep. um, about a hundred years ago or so, but it has implications in every aspect of our life. And it has implications in terms of looking at who we are as human beings and what is our true identity. Right. And even, and, and this is where it gets to the, the science leads naturally to really deep kind of spiritualness understanding because our very identity itself, rather than being stuck at our, just our physical bodies or whatever, we get to realize our consciousness itself and who we are is really um, arising from the interpenetration that, and with all the other systems around us, that we are emergent entities. Yeah. And, and you begin to see things in this way that leads to all kinds of explorations. I'm so tempted to want to ask you about uh, panpsychism at this particular point to see how far we can how far we can push that idea because there's there's profound implications to this new emerging idea of the interconnectedness and that our I, and, and if we were to just put it into practical terms, the the very ways in which we navigate through this world can no longer be so isolated and individualistic. We have to recognize that everything that we do is both uh, an effect and a cause of everything else around us, right? And, right. And exactly. this is this is the implication, I think, uh, of this particular work. Um, okay, so I'd like to shift a little bit because. You mentioned spirituality and still in some aspects of our culture, the split between science and spirituality still seems to be pretty robust. Yes. Um, but what you're attempting to do is um, attack that in some particular way or explain it away and recognize that the split really doesn't exist. Um, so can you share a little bit more about um, indigenous wisdom and what it is telling us and how it is informing us and how it could... Uh, change the way in which we do scientific inquiry and worldview and philosophy and all those different types of things. And then I want to get to a little bit of the history of Christianity for I come from an audience of people that um, adhere to a Christian idea and Christian worldview. And there's a part of me that also feels like 
uh, the explanation of bringing in these other spiritualities that you've talked about, like Taoism, Taoism and Buddhism and indigenous wisdom mm -hmm. can actually enlighten um, some of the parochial Christian views that is still very dominant in our culture, if that question made sense. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, totally. But let me let's start off um, with this, uh, look, looking at what we can learn really from indigenous wisdom, uh, which of course, um, we have to be careful, these kind of phrases become sort of cliches, or whatever, and there's sure. so, so much complexity and so much heterogeneity within that. But there are some things we can find are kind of generally true of indigenous communities pretty much around the world. And I, I talked already earlier about how that early um, way, that early way of looking at humans being part of um, an extended family is something we inherited from the earliest times in our human history, and which virtually every um, indigenous, sort of intact indigenous culture um, still maintains in one form or another, that sense of connectedness. I think probably the most important thing that we can gain from indigenous cultures is um, when we look at their value, at the basically underlying value systems. Because one of the key things that's happened is um, in these layers of separation that I've described is that our society right now um, has a whole fundamentally different value system than actually is natural for what we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. Like when we evolved as human beings, and um, really hundreds of thousands of years ago, even when we were sort of pre-human pre hominids, um, what actually separated us from other primates was the ability to share identity as groups. Um, and we over like basically a few million years before we evolved to be uniquely human, um, we developed what are known as moral emotions, which means that um, basically those, those early hominids that really saw themselves a part of a group and developed deeply felt group values. Um, so they could do things like feel embarrassed or um, love somebody who they saw was generous um, or feel shame if they did something wrong. These are very human ways mm. of basically group-based emotions. And what indigenous culture still holds today, the ones that are, are fairly intact, um, is a notion of a set of values based on that group identity. Um, that doesn't mean the sort of group identity, meaning like, oh, we all have to um, lose our individual identity and just kind of uh, become part of some hive and just um, get lost in groupthink, all these ways in which our individualistic culture um, sort of uh, confronts ideas of, of group identity. What it is, is rather that as humans, we evolved to want to be part of a group. And that's what actually allows us to feel well-being. And so indigenous cultures have core values of things like reciprocity, like a, and, and a sense not like reciprocity, meaning in our sort of market-based culture, right. I'll give yeah. something to you and you give something of equal value back to me, but it's rather that I'll be generous um, to you and you'll, you'll be generous back to me. And if somebody is extra generous to me, I'll feel a sense I want to give something back to that person. And it's so, oftentimes it's called a sort of gentle reciprocity yeah. because it just kind of happens naturally because it feels right. Can, can and, I interrupt you for just one second? Sure, because right. I, I can no. hear that word reciprocity through that old mechanistic kind of lens, which is exactly what you said. I give you X, you give, and there's almost an expected return and this new right. shift or this indigenous shift or the, you know, to be uh, nuanced and careful with that, as you mentioned, is a recognition that reciprocity is kind of a fundamental way of being in the world exactly. and how the world works. And that is the, the big, the big distinction that we're talking about. And, and along with that, what is, what we can then learn from those indigenous values. And again, this is where the, we find the intersection with systems thinking and modern science is the very notion our, that our identity itself can have different layers. It doesn't have to be stuck in terms of me being separate, no. yeah. but I can have a, a family identity with the rest of my family, which obviously most of us are used to. Um, that's something that fits within the dominant paradigm. We can have a group identity with our community. We can have an identity with all of humanity and we can have an identity with all of life. And each of those identities doesn't have to mean that the other identity is wrong um, or uh, um, invalid, but it's, it really enlarges our 
our exploration of what it can be to be human, to actually be able to exist in all of these different identities right. at different layers at different times. Yeah, that's, uh, man. I, I feel like just that little bit um, turn of the mindset could make such a radical difference in the world. But we're, okay, so we're, we're still stuck in this mindset. So let's move to how we get out of there. Well, actually, I wanted to back up because I wanted to ask you then about Christianity and right. its role right. and its development. Um, Christianity, for better or for worse, is still a predominant force in the world um, and all, all sorts of different iterations. And um, you seem to have... Um, critique, I don't want to say hostility, but some significant critique mm -hmm. about Christianity. And I just kind of wanted to ask you about that, because towards the end of your work, um, you mentioned things like the Human Rights Declaration from the UN and, and these particular values of interconnectedness. And there's a part of me that has understood historically that Christianity, while it has been the vehicle for a platonic understanding of a split universe that's led to the development of science and a mechanistic worldview. It has also been the vehicle of these very values that you're espousing at the end. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to ask you about that, not from an apologetic perspective, but really trying to understand the complex history here. Because if you're, which I'm all for, attempting to get humanity to reconceive of its worldview, rethink of the patterns by which we live and the systems in which we participate and the interconnections that we all live by, then it feels to me as if religion and all religions in some ways are going to have to reclaim that as well. So if Christianity has been uh, influenced and or taken over in some ways by platonic ideas, then should it not also be redeemed yeah. in this new <clears throat> new sense? Yeah. So, yeah. so what what say you, Jeremy? Uh, so, <laughs> All of so, these so, so much depth there, and there's so many core concepts that you're raising. <clears throat> what we I think what we need to do is kind of unpack some of these ideas okay. into somewhat separate um, sort of themes that I, we can explore one by one. Great, and great. For, you know, first is just the very notion of religion. Of course, if we look at the etymology of that word, it really means um, to be like to bind, um, and it's a, it's a word that arises from people feeling bound with their community, really being um, connected with a community. And so we can understand if we understand religion uh, just definitionally as a spiritual orientation that allows people to feel a sense of practice and values and ethics and in connection with their community then right. um, of course all the work that i put forward is very much a um, religious in that right. orientation and do you so, uh, sorry to interrupt do you find yeah. the the use of the word religion or religious ideas in that language agreeable well you know it's an interesting <clears throat> thought and <clears throat> actually <clears throat> i've had this conversation with um a wonderful biologist, a cell biologist, his name is Ursula Goodenough, who wrote a book mm. called The Sacred Depths of Nature. We actually had a, a public conversation just a few weeks yeah, ago. I watched it. She, uh, okay, great. So, yeah. so she actually um, has developed what's called the Religious Naturalist Association. Yeah. She totally believes this word religion <clears throat> is absolutely fine. I personally, in my writings, have avoided using <clears throat> that word in describing what I call the web of meaning, the sense of deep interconnectedness, not because there's something fundamentally wrong with the word, but because the associations with that word right. are so much oriented towards organized religion, like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, whatever, that I'm afraid that it just will get totally misunderstood. So I avoid using that word for that reason, just because of its associations, not because it's something I feel is wrong right. with it. Right. Um, so, but then let's come to this notion of, uh, what did, when I, I've written things that many people have seen as being sort of antagonistic to Christianity. And I want to kind of unpack that a bit. I think that's an important place to go. <clears throat> and um, what I've done, especially in the patterning instinct, as, uh, as we've been con in conversation about already, is looking at how this race in dualism um, was inherited um, and from the from the Greeks inherited by Christianity and Christianity in many senses is Plato's dualism and just systematized in a far more elaborate way um, and of course it's much more than that I don't want to like minimize yep, it in yep. that respect but it's very much a dualistic um, uh, um, sort of cosmology um, and 
what my issue is, there's a, a couple of issues with monotheism in general. And I, I have these issues as just as much with Judaism. And basically, I was born Jewish and, and still consider myself uh, sort of culturally Jewish or whatever. But I have an equally strong problem with Judaism and, and with Islam, um, which is that any religion that is dualistic in its uh, fundamental will lead people and it will naturally influence people to see a sort of desacralized world below <clears throat> and a separate uh, um, sort of spirit. Uh, uh, in another dimension, rather than seeing the inherent spirituality in all of life. Mm -hmm. But having mm -hmm. said that, I don't mean well, I don't mean to say that that is the only way that these religions can be interpreted. Right. And, and in fact, I've had a long, a really valuable, rich conversation with Matthew Fox, whom you, you may mm -hmm. know some of his work. Yep. Um, he's he's a, a devout Christian who spent his life um, describing what he calls a, the creation spirituality showing that, in fact, there's a different, there's almost like an underlying um, tradition in, in Christianity, um, which is really um, sort of characterized by, say, uh, people like Meister Eckhart or Julian of Norwich or um, uh, um, maybe even Aquinas, possibly. Um, right. And this is a way of looking at Christianity um, from that place of deep interconnectedness, from life being, from spirit being right there on earth. And in Judaism, you have the Kabbalah tradition. In Islam, you have this incredible Sufi tradition. So in each of these traditions, it doesn't mean that it's not possible to really pursue devoutly um, these, these traditions in a way that does really celebrate the spirituality of all life, which is wonderful. Yeah. And I'm, uh, and definitely, I believe that what we need going forward is to encourage all of these interpretations. In fact, um, I would say like Pope Francis right now mm. is one of the great leading systems thinkers of the world, who's basically encouraging that kind of, um, that way of rethinking uh, Catholicism, like from the yeah. sort of top down from the bottom up. Yeah. So in that, and so that's what important to understand. It's the dualistic notion that I have problems with yeah. rather yeah. than um, the, that, um, the actual religion itself. Plus there's one more dangerous element that comes from basically any kind of monotheistic religion, which essentially says, if I'm following that monotheistic religion, I must be in touch with the truth. And there's only one truth mm. because if there's one God and I'm worshiping that one God and he's telling me what to do or whatever. Then it means that everyone who's looking at the world from a different place is not just maybe got a different perspective. They're wrong. They're misguided and possibly they're going to go to hell or whatever. So that um, is another absolute, the sort of absolutism that arises from monotheism is another danger we need to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate that explanation. I'd like to I mean, you're the guest, but I'd like to share some perspectives and get yeah, your get your uh, response to that. Um, following with that line of thought, number number one um, is Christianity, Islam and Judaism and other religions as well, not merely going through the same evolutionary track that everyone else has been on, essentially. So if we have a quote unquote secular movement, cognitive movement from, you know, giving earth to mechanistic to extractionism um, are not religions just simply following that same particular pattern rather than being drivers of it. So that's my first question and inquiry. Like, how, how are we to think about that? And then the second is to ask, would you be agreeable to reconceiving all of the ideas that come out of the fundamental kind of originating texts of these religions? Now, I'm mostly familiar with Jewish and Christian texts. So, for example, the creation story in Genesis speaks highly of the, a monotheistic God, one God mm -hmm. that created everything. But Adam, uh, you and I are made of the Adama. We're made out of the ground and there's like this unity and monotheism being not exclusionary, but inclusionary, meaning that if there is only one God, then there is only one reality and one truth. And whatever realities we might happen to see and experience are all part mm -hmm. of that. Um, so I have, oh my gosh, there's so many different layers of questions. I apologize. But number one, how does that sit with you? But my, kind of my other question that I'm asking myself and even to the audience is, um, are we 
possibly agreeable to reconceiving all of these religious ideas, possibly in a much more originalist or indigenous kind of way, in accordance with, you know, the, the work that you're doing here in trying to bring together a completely new worldview. I'd love to get your take on all of that. Yeah, yeah sure. Well, I think that one of the great <coughs> treasures um, <coughs> of our human uh, cultural heritage is all the different religions that we have around the world. Right. And I think that the worst thing anybody could do would be to try to <coughs> um, sort of fit all, all these different ways of making sense of the, these um, amazing, profound questions that we human beings are, have evolved to be able to ask. To try to fit it all into one particular cookie cutter and say, this is the right way to go, right. has got to be a failed enterprise and misguided to begin with. Right. Um, but what, and so I, I absolutely encourage people from every one of the great religions or, or other, um, other sort of wisdom traditions around the world to, to really interpret them in the ways that can lead to this place of flourishing. And above all, I think what um, is most important is there it, each one of these does have these interpretations that can look at really what ultimately we can almost see as a kind of a shared pantheism, if you will, mm. that every religion can lead to, which is to just kind of recognize the deep sacredness of, of the universe. Um, of the, we can have reverence for the glory of this incredible universe that is so mind-blowingly beyond our even our greatest um, ability to conceive of from a human perspective. Um, and we can then, we can have um, reverence for the divinity of all of life. Um, and, you know, to me, that's just, that's sort of what, um, what really religion calls for in every which way. Yeah. There's this incredible miracle that life in its complexity emerged on this earth. Maybe it's there in millions of other planets all around the galaxy and other galaxies. We don't know. And, but what we do know is that it, the only one we know of is what evolves in this earth. And I feel like what is called for, and this really calls for a, a sense, almost like a religious sense of the sacred that's available in every person, whether they are devoutly secular, um, whether they're reductionist, whether they um, see themselves as Christians or Hindu or whatever, is just to recognize that ultimately there is this divinity in all of life. Right. And, we, and once we start from that basis, well, it leads to this recognition that we humans are not separate from nature in this way that's causing this destruction. And it leads us to try to reevaluate what's possible. If we, we don't necessarily see, <clears throat> have to see ourselves as humans as being um, somehow bad because of the destruction we've caused or whatever, but we can see uh, the worldviews that have led to this destruction as being things that are uh, life right now is calling on us to reconsider, to look at different ways of meaning making yeah. that can lead us to really fulfill our potential as human beings with our technology and with everything that is so unique around about us, but as part of a flourishing living earth. Yeah, it's, it's, it makes me sad because, um, you know, the popular uh, press that a lot of religions get obfuscates the underlying mystical traditions. For example, the divine spark has been mm -hmm. a part of the Christian tradition for, for many, many years. Uh, Houston Smith, the great religion uh, scholar, mm -hmm. writes about Christianity being a singularity that splays into a multiple diversity um, mm -hmm. and all these different ideas. And I don't know if this is encouraging to you, but it's part of uh, kind of the journey that I feel like many of us are on in what is becoming a post-Christian world. That's a lot of the speak that happens in, in um, the Christian and church circles that is re-embracing not pantheism per se, but panentheism, the idea right. of a unified <laughs> divinity within the entirety of the creation of which we are participating. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, uh, the encouragement for me, which is also just intriguing and fascinating, is that what's happening in those religious circles seems to dovetail very much with what you're doing in your synthesizing of science and spirituality and all that kind of stuff yes. together too. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that is all, that, that's all true, Kevin. But I, I was also realizing there was one other when, uh, question you asked. You, you asked this kind of multidimensional question. Yeah, I did. I did. It's equally important to look at that doesn't, has, we haven't yet covered in the way I've been responding to it, which is this notion of, um, if we look at something like the, um, the idea of human rights, 
<clears throat> yes. or um, some of these kind of great concepts that we see in the modern world that we don't see um, in earlier cultures or whatever. Um, and there's this this sense that even w whether it's Christianity or whether it's the modern dominant worldview, there's a strong body of philosophy or thought that says, um, no matter what you might say about the modernism or whatever it is, it did create concepts like um, justice or a sense yeah. of shared humanity or a sense of, even though it was a worldview that led, for example, to this hideous institution of slavery and colonialism, it was also a worldview that led to people like William Wilberforce and saying, this is unacceptable, this is immoral, and um, we're going to do something and actual, you even get political groups developing like the abolition of slavery to first time in history on fighting for rights for people other than themselves, you know, which is a really key way of thinking. So we need to look at that. <clears throat> and I do think that um, there are elements of that modern mo modernist worldview, which um, kind of would <clears throat> led to this enlargement <clears throat> of the sense of the human identity, which <clears throat> I think what we need to recognize is not that like so sometimes people look at this as if it's like a, a set of um, cultural evolution. Like we started as these kind of um, hunter gatherers and all we were aware of as our little group. And then we had agrarian civilizations and we had this bigger shared identity. Then we got to modernism and we got to our minds just got expanded to realize that we're part of the universe. And this kind of this, um, this sort of step up, I see it almost more circular, if you will, <clears throat> that actually with the rise in agrarian civilization, we lost a lot of the great wisdom that our yeah, indigenous yeah. human traditions had. And we developed other sources of wisdom or whatever, and which oftentimes connected with those indigenous ideas. A lot of what I relate to in Taoism and Buddhism and Neo-Confucianism, um, um, if you look at their core, they arise from indigenous sense of connectedness, but then they explore it in these profound different ways. But we can really see ourselves now as having the knowledge base coming from the scientific understanding to kind of reconnect with those core moral emotions that our indigenous um, ancestors just had more easily or had access to more easily. Yeah. So I think that's important to, to sort of see it more like this spiral uh, or almost like a circular uh, uh, um, sort of way of thinking about it rather than this um, sort of progress, this inevitable <laughs> progress we're making towards something. What comes to mind when you say that is I feel as if there is a reclamation that you're doing of science from the reductionistic worldview. Yes. And there's also a movement of religion away from the parochial exclusionism. And these kind of movements are happening simultaneously in, in some ways. There's so many people just being so disenfranchised with the exclusionism and the uh, misogyny and the patriarchies of, of religious ideas uh, and institutions, but still longing and yearning for uh, something that does open your heart and your mind to a much more capacious worldview of the divine in all sorts of different ways outside of the boundaries of that parochialism. So I feel like uh, we are, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you so badly, because I feel like what you've given us is a really brilliant synthesis and articulation of all of that, that can benefit that scientific endeavor, but also benefit the religious endeavor as well. And that yeah. we can join together in, and in some mm -hmm. ways synthesize the whole thing together, which is essentially what you're doing. We're trying to yeah. synthesize well, it all together. Exactly. And essentially, um, we can even think of it as not even as joining together as that there two um, separate entities that are, then need to join, but as more recognizing that the barrier that everyone thought was there right. was actually just this constructed um, untrue barrier to begin with. And then we can explore um, how a scientific understanding can lead us to these deep spiritual yeah. insights. And yeah. we can then also um, use science to understand those spiritual insights in deeper um, ways. For example, you know, um, we can look at how 
the patterns of nature exist everywhere around us, which in itself is something like indigenous cultures or Taoism, Neo-Confucianism, deeply understood. And they used to they talk in terms of patterns. But then we can use science to actually explore those patterns and say, oh, well, his um, fractality, this yeah. actual pattern that repeats itself at different scales throughout the universe. And, and here's like this, this small world network um, way of understanding networks, which is true for the pattern, the way things relate within each of ourselves right. or the way that forests relate. And so we can begin, we can use science to understand things, not to then take away from their spiritual meaning, but to almost like um, embed further uh, definition, yeah. richness in that spiritual yeah. meaning. And, and it, when we do that, everything is more true and richer in our experience. And back to some of the things that we've talked about before, um, much more beneficial for the world in which we create. Because um, you mentioned the constructs that we create, like the division is just simply a construct. Yeah. So now we need the next three hours to talk about the development of consciousness and how we construct yeah. our realities. <laughs> That's obviously for another time. Man, I could yeah. talk to you forever. So it's coming close to time. I want to be very respectful of your time, uh, even though I'm pretty geeked out right now about all this stuff. Um, I wanted to ask you about the word life and where life comes from um, because it's very much connected to process not life not as a thing not as a an actual thing that you get but as a pattern and a process but i'm not sure if we have enough time to kind of uh, yeah. extrapolate some of those things that so i feel like that's a really important helpful idea for people for how they create their own life my life sucks right now or my life is really good but if you thought about it in a much more patterning uh, connected sense then it could actually open up your mind to different imaginative possibilities for what kind of life we can create um so that that's definitely in your in your book the web of meaning because we're short on time if you want to touch on that I, i'd love to hear but um the question that i wanted to end um, Via Media is based upon this one idea that we want to inspire people to be curious and to be hopeful. And I define hope as the disciplined application of whatever you believe uh, in your philosophy. So uh, it's not an optimism. It's not a feeling. It's what you discipline yourself to do. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I wanted to end on that is because your, I think your story of how you came to all of this stuff, like, you know, where where did Jeremy come up with these ideas? Like, what was the kind of phenomenological journey of your life, I think is really powerful because it can help people connect with, you know what, I'm kind of in a similar situation or I'm going through a similar pattern. Yeah. So would you mind sharing a little bit of your personal story and connect yeah. it with uh, at least my definition of hope, which is a disciplined application of these uh, beliefs or philosophies? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and see if I can do that in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, um, I, basically I, I think I can write about this stuff um, because I spent the first half of my life basically um, totally embedded in this dominant worldview. Um, I took all these ideas about humans being like separate from uh, from nature and the some and basically humans being somehow more important than the rest of life and capitalism working so well because everyone just does their own selfish stuff and 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 that's the invisible hand that works. My my life has basically lived in in that kind of way, um, and it was only I actually started an internet company um, and took it public during the first dot com uh, uh, phase back in the late nineteen nineties, um, and I was CEO and proud of myself that I was doing all this. And then I went through a, a phase when basically everything collapsed around me. Um, my wife at the time, as she passed away some years back, um, she <clears throat> developed a serious illness. Um, and I left the company really when it was still too young to leave as CEO to look after her. And then within a year or two, the company collapsed. And then I went through this whole period in my life when even as I was looking after uh, my wife, she was suffering cognitive decline. So I kind of lost the person I'd really, and um, the only person I'd really loved so deeply and felt so connected with. And I, during this sort of, it was as if like I was in this kind of meltdown of things. And I decided at that point, here I was in midlife, it wasn't like I was at the end of my life, that whatever I did in my life going forward was going to be truly meaningful. And that's what led me onto this kind of search for meaning. Um, and I started, I, and I think fundamentally, I wanted it to be meaningful, not just um, to my head, meaning that um, I wanted it to be scientifically 
uh, and cognitively valid that I could really sense wasn't just sort of made up nonsense, but meaningful to my gut, to my heart, that it could feel right. Um, and I was looking for something that could truly integrate, a way of integrating all those different parts of me. And that was the journey that led to looking at the ways different cultures made meaning out of the world to try to understand that, which is really what the patterning instinct was about. And then it was, it was actually through that work, but through my own internal experiential work, discovering meditation, discovering traditional Chinese practices like mm. Tai Chi and Qigong, and, and relating that to this cognitive um, understanding. It was through that I could, that I could develop what I saw, what I could see is like this integrated worldview. And what I really show in the web of meaning is not like this is Jeremy's worldview, this is Jeremy's great insight, but rather um, it's a worldview that comes about through tying these connections yeah. between all these different elements and seeing how um, people working in climate activism or people working in systems biology or indigenous cultures or <clears throat> all these different groups actually are coming from the same source of deeply felt recognition of our deep interdependence mm -hmm. and interconnectedness. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. We did have one question come in. Let's see if I can get this up uh, into the, let's see if this works. Look at that. This is one question. Do you think humanity must overcome the problem of psychopaths, antisocials in order to change course? If so, how do you think we can and should overcome it? <laughs> yeah, what a great question. I don't think we need to overcome the problem of psychopaths. I think that we, and scientists actually um, tell us that maybe like two to three percent of humans um, may be uh, psychopaths congenitally, that just because of the ways in which their uh, consciousness um, basically connects up from infant son with, they're unable to connect with the normal sense of empathy and caring that most humans that most human beings access naturally. And um, so that's really what a psychopath is. And it's not that we need to overcome the psychopaths. What we need to do is rather um, just shift our culture so that it encourages from infancy onwards um, people to connect with their normal, natural human nature. Mm. Because as we evolved as humans, as I've described earlier, we evolved to care about others around us. We evolved to care about all of life around us. That is what we are as humans. That was, that's what gives us true well-being, a true sense of, um, of profound happiness, not just from hedonic things that might feel good for a short time, but a real sense of what Aristotle called eudaimonia, mm, sustained mm -hmm. being. Um, so what we need to do, both for ourselves as individuals in our own path, is, re is reconnect with what our own heart actually calls for. Um, and as a culture, what we need to do is rather than teach children from early infancy to be consumers and to want more and to want greater status and to like step onto this hedonic treadmill of modern consumerism, we need to like allow them to actually um, grow up in what uh, psychologist Darshan Narvaez has called the evolved nest, like the, the way of being. Um, with other humans around us, with other kids and other family around us, um, in the way that we humans evolved to be. That will lead to healthier human beings everywhere and lead ultimately to a much healthier yeah. human society. Yeah, in many ways, yeah. this very thing, this very philosophy that you're advancing is the solution, or at least one response to all of these kind of um, d differential psychological approaches to life, right? I mean, right. In, in many ways, I mean, I've been reading a lot of Ian McGilchrist, and some of that has uh, suggested mm -hmm. to me as well that um, the worldview, the pattern that we have created as this mechanistic, extractive kind of worldview, has actually given rise to all of these kind of psychological anomalies that probably didn't yeah. exist before. So, if we rethought our integrative worldview, then that might actually be the answer, or at least the salve for for all these kind of ailments. I think um, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I we're going to end here because I, I need to respect your time. I, I, for, I got distracted with the, the question that came through, but I wanted to mention um, the big question is how does somebody actually get to change this fundamental conceptual mm -hmm. way in which you navigate through this world? And the, the reason why I think your story is so important for all of us is to recognize that sometimes that um, 
only comes through massive disruption in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Where the way in which we think the world is working doesn't work for us anymore. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't fulfill us anymore. It's a, it's an experience. It's a phenomenology. And uh, I, I kind of, we don't have to answer this now, but I kind of wonder how we can maybe be much more active in creating those disruptions so that we can yeah. be much more actively, willfully trying to disrupt the worldviews by which we live yeah. so that we can join in the great human experiment and endeavor and journey of remaking our world. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. kind of my, my thought there. Um, Jeremy, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, you are such a gift. Everybody, listen, patterning instinct. <laughs> Well, see, I'm, this is how I'm going to pay you. I'm going to, I'm going to do your advertising for you. Phenomenal, phenomenal works. What a gift. And, um, I'm tremendously grateful to you. And I hope that some of the work that we do just helps to uh, get the word out about what you're doing. Um, for those of you watching, go to, uh, I think we have the links in all of the stuff that we put for the Leology Institute, as well as the Deep Transformation Network that Jeremy has started and is leading. And uh, yeah, he's got some great conversations on there that we encourage you all to uh, participate in. And to all of you who are watching, thank you so much for joining our very first conversational mm -hmm. interview with Via Media. And thank you for, um, participating in this journey of inspiring a curious and hopeful humanity. Join us next time for our next conversation. Everything will be at the website. Jeremy, thank you so much. And, and thank you, Kevin. Just a great conversation. So enjoyed it. Thank All you. All right. Good night, everybody.